Number Six, Part Two of The Heart of a Mystery by L. T. Mead and Robert Eustace. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Number Six, The Lost Square, Part Two. My fingers trembled as I took up my compass and measured the place. The thing was evident. It must be that. What are you doing? cried da Costa suddenly. Both men had noticed my excitement. I think I have got it, I answered. What? he exclaimed, grasping my arm. How? What? Where is it? It is here, and yet it is not here, was my ambiguous answer. The square? Yes, the square. You can find it? I think so. Let me alone for a minute. The two men sprang to their feet, both in such a state of excitement that I felt really alarmed. They seemed perfectly frenzied. They strode to and fro, uttering low nasal Portuguese expletives and casting glances at me with wild, staring eyes. I mean this, I said. My opinion is that this cipher is founded on a very old classical conundrum called the Lost Square, and I will show you how. In a few minutes I had cut out a square of paper, measuring eight inches by eight inches, and I had shown the men that when cut in a certain way it would be made into a parallelogram thirteen inches by five inches, apparently containing sixty-five squares. But the fallacy lay in the fact that the latter figure was not full, but that the spaces between the pieces made up the missing square. But then where is it? burst from da Costa's lips. I pushed back the table and fell on my knees. If there were a sixty-fifth square, it must mean that the floor was not level, for to contain an extra square a surface must be raised at some point. I passed the lantern over the floor and in a moment found some of the square stones perceptibly raised. I should say it was here, I said with a bold plunge. With no word of eulogy for my skill, they fell to work upon the stones with pick and crowbar, and I remember as they did so a very disturbing thought flashed across me. It was this. Why on earth, if the lady owned this house, should she want to have all this done, when, if there were the slightest chance of such treasure being hidden within its walls, it would be worth her while to pull the whole house down to find it? But these thoughts were instantly dispelled by the fact that I had evidently read the cipher aright. The men talked in Portuguese, and it irritated my already overstrung nerves not to be able to understand a word they said. The removal of four stones discovered the entrance to a low passage. Da Costa grasped my hand. Come along, he said, his voice choking with excitement, which almost amounted to madness. You and I will go first. We owe you, oh, what do we not owe you, Mr. Finis? When Signora Lelo Mendez knows what you have done, her gratitude will be unbounded, and she is one of those who never forgets. Ah, here she comes. The rustling of a silk dress was heard along the passage. The door of the small room was flung wide, and the stately figure of Mademoiselle de la Corte herself appeared on the threshold. The horror which surged up in my heart prevented my uttering a word. Outwardly I was stunned. Within, my pulses beat madly. I knew at once that I was the victim of a fresh conspiracy, and that of the most dangerous type to which I had yet been subjected. Mademoiselle wore a loose robe of black silk, which covered her from head to foot. On her head she had no covering beyond her light and beautiful hair. I backed slowly against the wall. She entered a foot or two, and her eyes met mine. "'Have you got the clue to the treasure, the key to the conundrum?' 
she asked. Know that I am Signora Lelo Mendez, and that the treasure within this house belongs to me. For years, for centuries, it has been lost. Have you, my enemy, found it for me, the greatest treasure in Lisbon? She came very close to me now, and her full, dark eyes glittered into my face. Have you discovered the treasure, Mr. Finace? she repeated. I nodded. I could not speak. Then you will find that even your enemies are grateful. Come, you and I will lead the way. I hated you and planned your death. You also hated me and would have ruined me had you been able. But this atones for all. Come. She took the hand which hung limp at my side. I could no more have resisted her than the paralyzed bird resists the cobra. She led the way to the narrow opening. We went down the passage. It widened as we progressed. At last we reached the other end. Mademoiselle's small hand held mine in a grip of iron. When we came to the end of the passage, da Costa raised his lantern and uttered a cry which echoed and reverberated oddly. There were four of us in the opening which my discovery had led to, Mademoiselle, da Costa, his assistant, and myself. We found ourselves standing on the edge of a deep well some four feet in diameter. As we approached, da Costa lowered the lantern into the well. The air was foul, but not sufficiently tainted to put out the light. The well was from fifteen to sixteen feet in depth. Its walls were smooth and glistening. I noticed that about halfway down, bulging into the wall, was an old piece of piping. Before I had time to say anything about this, the man who had helped Acosta brought forward a rope, put it round the waist of the Portuguese, and lowered him into the well. He reached the bottom, fumbled about there, and presently I heard him utter a shout. Mademoiselle, bending forward, asked him if he had found it. Yes, he cried, yes, enough treasure to keep us rich for the remainder of our lives. I'll take some with me, and we'll return for the rest. Then come at once, she said. Take enough, but come at once. There is not a moment to lose. The assistant hauled da Costa up. When he reached the surface, he slapped his pocket. It rattled. Ah, mademoiselle, he said, we are rich now. And we owe it to Mr. Finace, she replied. She turned towards me, her face white as death, her eyes gleaming with excitement. I was just about to reply to her when a terrific crash at the back of my head caused thousands of Catherine wheels to dance before my eyes, and I remembered no more. When I came to myself, I was in pitch darkness. For a time, I could recall nothing. Then memory returned. I knew where I was. I had been flung to the bottom of the well. I shouted for all I was worth, but without the least hope of anyone hearing me. I realized, when too late, that I had been the victim of the worst conspiracy Mademoiselle had yet formed against me. She had at last absolutely and completely succeeded in accomplishing my ruin. She had already, to all intents and purposes, committed murder, for there was nothing before me but death by slow starvation. By my death, I should be the means of her salvation. She who knew everything had heard of my latent talent and of its strange development. She had seized her opportunity to lure my secret from me for her own purpose. Senora Lelo Mendez was a name adopted for her own purposes by this extraordinary and awful woman. She meant to steal the treasure from the old house, and in making me her tool, she would also compass the long-desired event of my death. Pinheiro's name had been only used to trap, 
to lure me into the net, but how Mademoiselle had contrived to extract a letter from him was beyond my wildest endeavors to discover. I paced round and round my narrow and dreadful prison. Suddenly I remembered that I had a box of matches with me. I struck one and tried to examine my place of confinement. Many feet above me loomed the black circle of the mouth of the well. The sides were smooth and slippery, and offered not the slightest help for fingers or feet. I could just trace the piece of piping at one of the junctions. That was all. I was trapped like a rat in a hole. Here I was, buried beneath a cellar, in a strange house, in a foreign city. No one would miss me. No one could possibly guess where I was. I remembered, also, that it was Sunday morning, and if the house was used as a codfish store, it would not be entered till Monday morning. Even then it was a thousand to one against my being found, for my shouts would scarcely penetrate the thick walls which choked down my voice as with a blanket. When the first shock of terror passed, there came that wild desire for life which God has implanted in the breasts of men. It is, in a certain sense, one of the most terrible of our passions. I only hope that I may never feel it again. I was young to die. I did not want to die, to die thus in the dark and alone of hunger and starvation. What fate could be more horrible? To die unmourned, unmissed, with that one terrible woman, that fiend in human shape, triumphing over my early doom. I struck another match, but the flame died out. For hours and hours I sat crouched at the bottom of the well, until at last came that merciful stupor which visits men in such situations. Then again that passed. I became wide awake, alert, and full of the most desperate resolution. All my thoughts centered on Pinheiro. I thought of him so earnestly, so long, with such passion, that I forgot that there was another human being in the world. It seemed to me that when I thought of him I saw a light, and that light went far, penetrating beyond the gloom of my dungeon, through the walls of the old house, shining on and on, till it reached his palace in the fashionable part of Lisbon. At the end of that long time of whiteness I saw Pinheiro himself. He was in his study. He was thinking hard. He was seated by his huge writing desk. He took up a paper and examined it. He started and looked at it more fully. His face became agitated. He paced the room. Then a look of resolution filled it. He hurried from the room, closing the door after him. In his footsteps I seemed to see eagerness and a wild desire to obtain an object, and at once. When he disappeared, the light also faded. I leapt to my feet and began to pray earnestly. Had I seen a vision? Was my brain going? I prayed once, twice, many times. I think I must have been partly delirious, for after my prayer I opened my knife and began with all my force to stab the walls above my head. They were hard, and the point of the blade snapped at once. Again I prayed for deliverance. Again I stabbed the walls with the stump of my broken knife. Suddenly I felt myself drenched with a gush of water. It poured into the well in a cascade. It increased every moment. I uttered a cry of despair, for I thought I should be drowned in this ghastly hole. In and in the water poured with increasing force. It smelt foully as it splashed and eddied around me. In five minutes it was up to my waist, and another five it reached my chin. And then the most marvelous thing happened. I was floated gently to the mouth of the well. 
If that was not providence, I don't know what was. I had evidently cut through the junction of the pipe in my blind fury and had liberated the water from the river. I scrambled out of the well and stood for a minute or two, drenched and trembling, on the edge. It was just then that I heard sounds in the room above me, a scuffling noise, men's voices, then a woman's loud and despairing shriek. These sounds were followed by silence. Two minutes later a light, not fancied but real, penetrated my gloom. Footsteps came hastily down the narrow passage, and Penhero, with blood on his shirt and cuffs, stood before me. Finesse, he said, I thought I should find you here. By all that is wonderful, what brought you back to Lisbon? Your letter, I gasped. The letter you wrote to me and sent by da Costa. Then I understand the marks on the blotting paper, he answered. Come. I looked him in the face and tried to speak, but consciousness for the second time that day forsook me. When I came to myself, I was lying on a sofa in Pinheiro's house. He was standing close to me, holding a glass of strong stimulant in his hand. Here, he said, drink this. You are an unlucky beggar. But tell me quite quietly what has happened. Take your own time. There is no hurry. Whatever your perils, they are now at an end. Take your time. I gasped out my miserable story as best I could. But why did you write to me, I said in conclusion. I should never have come but for your letter. The letter was a forgery, he replied. I remember my servant telling me one day that a lady had called to see me on business, had asked to wait for me, but in the end had gone away before I returned. She gave her name as Signora Lelo Mendez. Now I knew that there was such a lady, although she does not live in Lisbon, to whom the old house Casa dos Picos belongs, and thought nothing about the visit, hoping to see the Signora later on. How could I suppose that another terrible plot, with a double object, was on foot? But now, listen, I have good news for you. We have at last, and in very truth, secured our enemy. Mademoiselle Delacorte is lying under arrest in this city, and clever as she is, she cannot escape from her prison walls. But pardon me, I interrupted. How was it that you thought of coming to the rescue? The most extraordinary thing. I was in my study, busily engaged, but I could not set to work, for my thoughts reverted to the past. I told you once, Finesse, that I would give you the history of these lost fingers. He held up his mutilated hand as he spoke. There was a woman who I loved. Ah, madly. She got into the power of that fiend. I was too late to save her life, but in rescuing her body I lost these fingers. Enough. I will tell you more later on. The thought brings madness even now. A Portuguese never loses sight of the object of his vengeance. Old memories drove me wild this morning. I could not work. I idly turned the pages of my blotter. There I saw traces of a letter which I knew I had not written. It is true it was to all appearance in my handwriting, but the words were not mine. This is what I read. My dear Finesse, the bearer Signor da Costa, a native of Lisbon and a friend of mine, has just been to see me in connection with a document and diagram which he believes to be of great value. Lower down I read the words, As this is very much in your line, I would send him to you. And then, again, if you can do anything to help da Costa, you will oblige me. This was enough. I happen to know da Costa as a scoundrel of the deepest dye, a diagram in connection with the treasure in the Casa dos Bicos, has long been puzzling all our antiquaries. And a feeling of overmastering fear came upon me, that you had been deluded into coming to Lisbon, that you were now in that infernal house. I rushed there, 
as it turned out just in time. Mademoiselle had passed herself off as Senora Lelo Mendez. She had secured a portion of the celebrated treasure, and all would have gone well for her, but for the fact that she and her assistants began to quarrel as to the division of the spoils. I took the precaution not to go to that house alone. I had some emissaries of the police with me. We quickly secured Mademoiselle, who had long been wanted. The men in their desperation fought like furies, but they too were secured and handcuffed. In their terror they gave themselves away, describing your hiding place and where they had found the treasure. Well, I saved your life and captured our enemy, and the treasure will find its way eventually to the old lady who is the real Senora Lelo Mendez and who lives in a remote part of the country. Pinero ceased speaking. I sat still with thoughts too deep for words. Thus ended the strange mysteries, the inexplicable horrors, which dogged my steps for the greater part of one year. Mademoiselle Delacorte will never trouble me again. As to the diamonds, the real Senora Lelo Mendez, having heard the entire story, presented me with one to set in a ring, and I always wear it on my finger. When the well was pumped out, three hundred more Brazilian diamonds were found. Thus came to an end the worst of all my adventures, that which found me at the bottom of the well in the old house Casa dos Picos. End of Number 6, The Lost Square, Part 2 End of The Heart of a Mystery by L.T. Meade and Robert Eustace